Hi, you are listening to The Workplace Theater. This is the podcast where we go behind the scenes of corporate real estate, talking to industry experts about how they shape the next generation workplace. I'm your host, Sabine M. And in today's episode, I'm speaking with Jose Luis Sanchez Concha Ibarra. Jose is Design Strategy Director for Latin America at Gensler. Hi, everyone. I'm today with Jose Luis Sanchez Concha Ibarra. I'm quite excited once more because we connected on LinkedIn and Jose suggested to have a conversation about real estate in the workplace in Latin America. And I was really interested. So here he is. He works for Gensler. And I'm really curious, Jose, what do you do and um, how did that came about? So what's your professional background? Where, how did you come where you are now? Hi, Sabine. Thank you for that. I define myself as a problem solver and a troublemaker. That comes because a large part of what I do is to solve problems and answer the tough questions. That's what we do in a strategy. And a troublemaker comes because sometimes you need to provoke a little bit and, you know, put on the table like different ideas and different points of view for people to realize how to solve their own problems. I am an architect by training. I started back in my native country in Peru. I moved to Spain where I lived for about 12 years and I started doing my master's in real estate. And I had my probably the biggest epiphany I had on my career where I realized that I was not going to pursue a career on design. I realized that I don't have, as an architect, a gift that some people have to, you know, create and design spaces. And, and it was a great thing because as an architect, you are trained to, you know, be a designer and be on architectural magazines and see your projects in the, you know, in the cover of the magazine and all of that. But once I recognized I, I was not going to be that, I started to pursue different practices within the world of, you know, architecture and, and real estate. So I started doing some real estate and ended up working on facilities management and wanted to learn a little bit about how you operate buildings, how you deal with the maintenance and the services and all of that. And I would say that when I found workplace and workplace strategy was love at first sight, I definitely recognized that that's what I wanted to do with my career. So I started pursuing that and was super fortunate to work in Nokia. At that time, I ended up being the workplace strategy responsible for a large geography, EMEA and India. And uh, that allowed me to start working, you know, in different cultures, different countries, understand different biases of people and how, you know, people see the workplace and the work. And, and it's been a great journey since then. After that, I moved back to Peru for a few years and then I, I was recruited by Gensler. So that was a, a unique opportunity to be part of a, you know, global leading team where you see a lot of knowledge, where you connect with a lot of great people. And of course, you have the opportunity to work with fantastic clients. So you are based in Costa Rica now. I am. I'm kind of jealous um, <laughs> because I imagine it's nice and warm there while I'm sitting with a sweater still. <laughs> but what my actual point is going to be, now you're responsible for Latin America. 
And you have worked, as you've mentioned, in Europe, being responsible for EMEA region as well. Do you see differences in the workplace between these markets and geographies and how strategy and expectations there pin out? I would say that I, I see more similarities than differences, always. I remember back in the day, starting in Europe, I heard a lot like, you know, oh, this might work in Germany, but it doesn't work here. And then you go to Germany and they would say, oh, this might work in Northern Europe, but it doesn't really work here. And you go to the other place and they will say this works in the US and, and so on, right? So most have the same concerns. Most have the same approach to a traditional legacy type of office you know, the old cubicle farm with private offices in the perimeter and the corner office, the large corner office with a private bathroom for the boss. So it's difficult to change. Although I'd have to say that working on projects, being a Latin American myself, it prepares you to expect the unexpected. In certain more developed markets, typically things work as they should work. And sometimes in other geographies, they don't. And to be prepared to, you know, face some uncertainty and something that was supposed to work well, but didn't really work as you were expecting it, and be prepared for that and plan for that, that's been a great advantage. Uh, within my region, I had some, you know, countries in development. I work a lot in India and in the Middle East, and it actually helped a lot to have that kind of mindset. Yeah, to be open for the cultural differences. I remember actually that I used to, when I got into projects, that I used to research on workplace behavior because there is great pieces out there from Gensler, Steelcase and other companies who have compiled their insights there. So I try to prep myself and understand what's their acceptance towards density, what's their acceptance towards activity-based working models. So in that regards, in Latin America, from your point of view, what's the dominant workspace uh, configuration currently? It is changing and it's changing rapidly. You just touch on a, on a very interesting point about density. You know, I've talked a lot about this with my colleagues. And, and of course, when I was in Europe, we were targeting a certain density for the space that was a little higher compared to the US. And then you come to Latin America and density is even higher. It has a lot to do with the cost of real estate and the size of the economy. If you start comparing the GDP of a certain city and the cost of the real estate, you end up realizing that real estate sometimes is proportionally more expensive in certain markets, such as Latin America. Therefore, you cannot afford to have a lot of area per person. And that's one driver that you see a lot. The moment where you start talking with a client or talking with someone that is thinking about a project and it's always the mindset of the capacity. We need to fit so many people in a certain space. That's something that is not unique to Latin America, but certainly has been a driver. One of the most exciting things that are happening right now is that this incredible experiment of remote work is taking that down. So we might not think about the spaces in terms of capacity. The type of space that you see the most is what I described earlier, you know, legacy cubicle offices. But I think that we're picking up quickly. I wouldn't say that Latin America is a region that, at least in our industry, 
that grabs innovation immediately. It's a little bit of wait and see what happens. And when that happens, you pick up very quickly. Like we passed from the disk phone to the iPhone in probably five years. We didn't go through the whole, you know, 20 year process of getting there, right? We, we were just sort of waiting and then jump for it. And yes, you will expect now that offices will change rapidly. I am surprised to see not global clients, of course, globals, they go with, they align with their global policies, but local companies are starting looking much more carefully to trends and to see what's coming next for the workplace. Who knows, in the end, you might get ahead of the curve because the way I see it, the models have been piloted a lot, but I wouldn't say that Europe's like heading that development either. There's also still a lot of resistance depending on the, the company and the culture and the geography and many, many things, often including politics within the company as well. Now, um, politics is actually a good cue Currently, who are your stakeholders? Who do you collaborate with in the projects that you work on? My first and most important is the client. And I typically engage in the earlier conversations just to understand where the pain points are. You know, what is driving whatever decision they want to make in relation to the space they put their people to work in. And uh, if it's a renovation because it's outdated, if they are looking for efficiency, if they want to pick up the trends or just move because of, you know, location is not ideal. That's probably my first and most important. But then internally with our design teams, we have a great design workforce in the company and, and they do magic with projects. When we engage together and, and they use information knowledge and a strategy as an excuse to do the magic, the result is much better. So I do engage a lot with, with our design teams as well. Would you say there are typical challenges that you are facing in these kind of projects? Resistance, typically. It only takes a visionary leader to make some changes, but there is a lot of layers in an organization and you need to carefully navigate those layers. Middle management, perhaps, is, is one of the toughest because space in time has become some sort of, it's part of your remuneration somehow. It's part of what you get when you advance in a company. There is an, a certain expectation for you to, you know, move to a bigger desk or move to a closer desk to the management and then get your own office and, you know, eventually get to the big office. I don't know if this is a construct that we got from Hollywood. I have been very curious about every time I see offices. You know what? I don't know if you, if you have noticed. I, I've noticed that in every, you know, action movie where they some sort of destroy a building, typically they destroy open plan offices, not traditional offices. That's something that is very curious. But there is indeed a construction that we have in our minds about success in a company and the space comes with it, right? And getting that out, it's a great challenge. It's, it's not easy. When it happens, works fantastically well. And most people, my favorite part of what I do is when people click with an idea, when they recognize that there is a trade-off. I'm going to lose some privilege in terms of a space, 
but I'm going to gain, I don't know, better technology, more meeting spaces, better space for my team, a better interaction, some flexibility to work remotely. And then they click and they go for it. And when you go back after you do the changes and start asking people, I would say that I don't know, 95 plus percent wouldn't go back to the previous one. But the process is a challenge. And we don't call it change management. We're trying to change. Change management sounds like an an engineer is going to come and tell you what to do, with all my respect for engineers. But we prefer to call it like (laughs) positive change experience and, and help people to have a positive experience through the process of change. We design experiences for them to feel better about it. But indeed, it is a big challenge. And sometimes you just have to talk to people that are very strict on the decisions and say, well, we are not going there. We want to have everyone in the office every single day. And and I want to have private offices for all the managers and all of that. And it happens. And then you, you just focus on little wins, you know, perhaps increasing the collaboration or putting some informal collaboration areas here and there. And then, you know, you can see some things and and you gain some others. But I would reckon that we are on the verge of an incredible shift on the way we conceive this workplace. I feel it's a bit like getting into um, a sports routine. You know, at first you don't want to do it because you feel like, oh, I need to get up earlier. And then it's going to be... It's going to be exhausting doing it. I'm going to sweat and stuff. And then, but once you get into it and get used to it, you feel like, oh, there's muscles popping up in my body. And oh, I can eat twice as I, the amount of food that I could before. And I feel it's the same with the workspace. You need to experience the gains versus the losses, but it's very abstract to transfer that in conversations. It is. It is. And belief, belief is built on information and experience. If you are to believe something, if you are to believe that some workplace model will work, if I give you only information, it's not going to be enough. Information just, you know, clicks on one part of your brain, but you need to experience it. Sometimes you don't have the ability to do pilots for people to test stuff. So in that case, what I try to do is always get testimonials. I'll bring someone that you will identify with as your peer and ask this person to give you a testimonial, I hopefully a testimonial that say, hey, you know, don't worry, this works beautifully. And that way you, you start, you know, building uh, belief on people. I think it should be kind of like a trip advisor for offices. We should get ratings for different things from a, a community of people and getting their workplace experience. That um, would be fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I'll work on that as a side project, taking a note now. I want to talk a bit about the business initiatives that are driving the real estate strategy. What do you see there? Maybe specifically in Latin America, but in general as well. It is specific for Latin America, but it applies to other markets too. I think that we saw right before pandemic hits, we saw an incredible growth of flexible spaces. But flexible spaces with sort of a different flavor, you wonder how a company with a little history and not such a large portfolio and not that much presence in geographies compared to a more, you know, legacy flexible office company with more presence 
in more geographies and more portfolio and profitable and more story. And the value of the first is way over the second and it has to do with the experience. And I think that the key for success of flexible space has to do, think about the Maslow pyramid, whereas, you know, in the base of the pyramid, you provide the basics. And on the top of the pyramid, you provide a better experience. And I think that was a key. And the traditional players on the real estate industry, they they were very worried about that kind of growth because the actual industry hasn't really evolved so much in the past, I don't know, 50, 60 years. I mean, the lease that you signed before COVID was very similar to a lease that you signed on the 80s. There was not really, you know, more flexibility built into it. So that has started to get into the industry. And I'm convinced that the future is there. The future is offering a more flexible sort of engagement in terms of uh, leases in real estate. Of course, it's not going to be easy because it's been years of an industry working in a certain way. I don't know if it was greed or what was driving it, but I think that owners and developers will need to reconsider how they are going to allocate their portfolios in terms of what kind of lease type they are going to promote. There are a couple of very provocative ideas out there, like, you know, maybe we just reached the peak of occupancy. Now that people is not necessarily going to the office every single day and they will be using their homes or other third places to do their work. Maybe we don't need to build more buildings. You had a lot of vacancies in corporate real estate that you might don't have in the future. You have a a lot of buildings that can be repurposed and repositioned. There was this fantastic example, this company named Spacious that was acquired by WeWork a few months ago. They basically rent spaces on, you know, high-end restaurants that are closed during the day because they only do the dinner shift. Beautifully designed, perfectly located, and you could access to those spaces for a small fee to work there or to have a meeting there. And, you know, beyond the fact that there were restaurants is the this idea of using unused real estate. If we think of how much real estate that is not being used all the time, we can leverage on to create new spaces and experiences. It might not be that crazy that we don't need to build more buildings in the future. I mean, there will be new buildings, of course. I'm not suggesting that we won't, but it is a very interesting idea when you think that you can repurpose some existing real estate and then new projects will focus differently. You know, and will provide a much better experience. You know, now now work is completely beyond the workplace, and that's a great challenge, of course. That's why I love actually that idea of using the restaurants during the day, because typically, as you said, they have a nice layout. They provide an, an experience that you enjoy, and then you go there for work as well, because that's an environment that you do like to, because that's the thing now, the office starts to compete with an environment, your home, that you have decorated and the built to reflect your personality and what you like and where you feel cozy. It's like, why should I go to an office that has like cold desks, no, nothing that feels familiar if I could be at home as well? And I mean, for certain tasks. 
or go to an exciting restaurant that maybe I don't want to afford at night, but I can be there during the day working. So I really, I'm really excited about that. And you know, following that restaurant, and you just mentioned something interesting, why should I go to the office? The office will need to provide an elevated experience, just as sometimes you go to eat your lunch or dinner in a restaurant, you can cook at home, you know, yeah. but the restaurant offers you something else. It's a whole experience. And of course, the food and all of that, but also the ambience and the people and the location and, you know, all of that you will need to take in consideration for the future design of offices. Absolutely. That's actually the perfect segue for a next question that I have from what do you think the future workplace environment should look like? Or which option scenarios do you see? Because I do imagine that we'll still have variations depending on the industry and the kind of people in different departments and personal preferences and these kind of things. But I mean, you're a design um, director. What, what are you advising on currently? I'm a design strategy director. That's the name of my role. And remember, I don't design. I, I, my epiphany told me that I'm not good at that. I have people that is yeah. fantastic doing that. It's probably too early to know because we really haven't had the opportunity to test ideas. But good news okay. is, I mean, everyone that is on this industry, particularly in my area of workplace strategy, we've been dreaming about this for years. I mean, we've been talking about a distributed workforce, you know, that can work and can do their work anywhere. And then we'll go to the office and the office is like a hub where you, you know, meet with your colleagues and you celebrate the culture of your organization and you innovate and do, you know, the stuff that is cool to do when you are there in person and you move the rest somewhere else. That's not a new idea that didn't come with COVID. We were thinking about that for years. So there are some clues about what that looked like. A place that adapts to people just as a I don't know, convention center adapts to the group that they are receiving. You know, they, they use flexible partitions and some flexible furniture to rearrange and reaccommodate for the type of activity that is going to happen. It might be something that we will see in the office in the future, that you will have certain spaces where, I don't know, Mondays and Wednesdays are configured for brainstorm sessions. And then Tuesdays and Fridays are more like informal lounge and Tuesdays, it's a, a different use, you know. This means that all the experience in the office needs to be very curated. So it's not only the design, it's the facilities management and the operations of the office that will be need carefully taken care of. They will need to really anticipate the needs or use technology to anticipate needs of the workers. Workers are going to be like shoppers. You know, they will go and shop for the best experience when they go to work. And hospitality factor, you know, and, and the idea of, of having a hospitality type of service in the office and things like will attract people. There, there was a time, this is not the first time remotely. I've been working remotely for a while, particularly when I was in Europe. I barely go to the office. I only went to the office to meet some friends for lunch, I don't know, once or twice a month. One day I was thinking of it and I was like, well, actually, there is nothing that is really attracting me there. And that's the key point. I, if you really want your workplace to be alive, you need to make sure that people want to come beyond 
the fact that there will be scheduled meetings and there will be like team agreements on which days we are meeting there and all of that. You want to go the extra mile and think of the design of your space and the services that you provide and the technology that is there as a reason to be a magnet for people and make people come. You know, earlier this century, a handful of technology companies started exploring remote work. I mean, again, this is not new. This has been there for for years. And in some cases, the outcome of that was people is not really coming back to the office. They are so comfortable working remotely that they are they only come on Mondays because managers come on Mondays and they want to be seen by the managers. And and perhaps it's just the fact that we need to give them a reason to come. It's not that we are forcing anyone to come every single day. It's just I'll give you a reason to come to the office beyond the fact that of course meeting with people, you know, build social connection is super important for us as human beings. It needs to happen in a place that is appealing for the worker. I think there is still a lot to untangle of all these factors that play out in the decision whether I go to the office or not. I have to admit that for me, sometimes it was just like, oh, I just got obsolete. There is no more time to go to the office. I will work from home, apparently. And then I might have switched in the afternoon. So there's... Yeah, a lot of factors that companies maybe even can't really influence. But do you think it's a good idea to start with the purposes that you think the office needs to cater for? Yes, and we need to rethink the purpose of the office. If we were looking at workplace or corporate real estate as containers for people or think of offices in terms of, uh, as I said, the capacity, Clearly, we need to change that. And I think the purpose is going to be get us together to do great things and get us together to do the best, to do the best work you can. You might need a balance between coming to the office and being at home. I've been asked at some point, like, you know, how we replace the human interaction in the virtual world. And I think the answer is very simple. You don't. You don't replace it. You encourage people to get together. Even companies that are remote first, that they only do remote work and they don't really have offices anywhere, they get together, you know, frequently throughout the year, two, three, four times, you know, so you can actually meet the people. I, I always tell that, you know, the fact that I, I have great virtual collaboration with my colleagues at Gensler right now is because I know most of them in person and I've spent hours of working together, being in the same space, shared meetings, doing workshops together and all of that. And that definitely, definitely changes the quality of our virtual interaction. So still the workplace will be that place where you build that social connection and, and that social capital that allow you to work more efficiently and be better in the virtual world. The social aspect is super important. I was reading the other day a very provocative idea about socialization that the author was saying something like, you know, companies are not responsible for people to socialize. Actually, the fact that people socialize in the workplace is because they have to be there 40 hours a week or, you know, a large part of their of their week. People should be socializing with their neighbors, their family, their school friends, and all of that. And even though I think it's a bit extreme, I think that I do have great friends in the office and I'd like to see them and hug them and shake their hands again. 
I think it's interesting that concept of the office is not a socializing place per se. It has a social component, but it's not about, you know, party and drinks or whatever you do to socialize. It's about building that social capital. And if you can have a good time, you know, with your colleagues, that's fantastic. And if you see them, I am a expatriate working in a foreign country. And of course, most of my friends are from work because that's my social circle as well. But I think it's interesting to understand that the purpose of the office is not to make people socialize, is not to force people to be more productive, is actually to enable them to be more productive and enable them to build that social capital with their colleagues. And definitely, I don't, I don't really see a future where you don't go to the office anymore. I think that it's super important that you do and you share in person with people. We've become very good in virtual collaboration. I still remember the days where you need to call on a meeting, you know, by phone. And it was a horrible experience because you couldn't hear everyone or people couldn't hear you. And and you feel completely like, you know, people is not really listening to me. We've become much better on that. And I think that's good news. Still a bit of a challenge, but no doubt that after a period of adjustment, we'll learn more how to make that work. We'll learn, learn more. Maybe today I can say, oh, well, I'll go to the office once a week. And later I realize that I need to be there at least a couple of days or three days per week because that's where my team is, you know, and we are not going to be synchronized perfectly every single day. So it will be a work in progress to figure that out. And I think it's very important to say that we can't expect that once regulations are lifted and everybody could work from the office as well, that we will see what the truth of future of work is going to be because there's, yeah, there's going to be adjustment periods. I've actually listened to a conversation last week that I found very interesting where people said the situation now where we are forced to work remotely has actually been some kind of introverts revenge because people who suffered in the workplace being social all the time kind of get a break from that and it's actually kind of nice to plan the work days like you want them not being interrupted constantly or having to engage in certain activities to be seen and heard in the company because it kind of gives an equality angle to it as well but again once we have that open source i want to call it open source here again, it will look differently. There will be some organizations around it. So it's going to be a long journey, I like to say. We can't expect it to be there right away. An important question that comes with that is, with so much uncertainty, how do you determine space demand now and how will office planning need to develop? That's a tricky one. And yes, yeah. uh, you know, it's I, know. Typically, <laughs> I mean, we love the challenge and, and, and my team, we will always make this joke. Every time a client comes with a, you know, weird, strange or unknown sort of request, it always comes to us. It always comes to the strategy team to figure that out. And it happened last year, quite early, actually, here in Costa Rica, a client coming and saying, you know what? After these few months, we've realized that we will go for, you know, mostly remote sort of organization. So we will have, I don't know, between 20 and 30 people, 20 and 30% of the people coming to the office on a daily basis. And we need to understand how this is going to work out for the space planning, how much area we will need and how we are going to distribute that area. 
And then some others came later than that with similar requests. So first things first, the biggest shift is forget about the desks. I mean, not, not literally, there will be some desks in the office. Some people will need to sit and you know, respond emails. And some people don't have the privacy they need at home children and dogs and, you know, neighborhood noises and all of that. So there, there will be desks, but desk is no longer the unit. We used to calculate the array of offices in a very simple way. Just, you know, how many people you will have, that means so many desks. And we applied a ratio of so many square meters or square feet per desk, and then you have the area. That's gone. That's not the way you do it anymore. We started doing many simulations and realized that focusing on the number of seats is a good way to quantify the space you need. And in order to understand how many seats you will need, and a seat defined as a individual position that can be used for either individual work or to be in a collaboration room or a space. You need to understand your demand. You need to understand how many people you will have in the office. And we have a fantastic group, you know, of people working with data and making simulations. And they were inspired in simulation models that are used in when designing theme parks or casinos or places where a lot of people used to go. And the, the key is you need to design a space that will look good when it's not completely full, like when the average sort of people comes, it doesn't look like it's empty. But when the peak of people comes in, it's not completely crammed and impossible to use. So based on that, and through surveys and data, we can determine what the peak occupation is going to be. Once you know how many people you will have, you need to provide a buffer to calculate the number of seats. If I had 100 people coming, like that's my design peak, I'm not going to give only 100 seats because we need more, probably, I don't know, 30, 40, 50% more just to make sure that everyone, you know, in a 10 people meeting room, you never have 10 people. So just, Very true. you know, based on that, and then you apply a ratio to that seat. So in earlier simulations, we've come up with a number that is probably, I don't know, between 25, 35% less than the typical ratio you use per workstation. It's a little less because, you know, seats in, in meeting rooms are more efficient. You can fit more people and all of that. But we factor in two very important things. One is an increased collaboration ratio. In a good case, you had, before the pandemic, one collaboration seat per one workstation. And we are starting plotting simulations like, you know, three collaboration seats per workstation, four collaboration seats per workstation. And the second factor is increased circulation. Instead of going for 25, 30%, just raising it up to 40%. Because again, if we have been squeezing people in spaces for over 30 years, maybe a quality space is one that, you know, where you don't feel squeezed. That said, that's one way to do it. That's the way that we are using right now with our clients. Understand the demand and you know, work based on the number of seats that you need and use that to calculate the area. There is reduction. I mean, there, there will be reduction. Depending on how aggressive you are with your remote work policy, depending on how efficient your space was before, a lot of people is using the term right-sizing. I think it's appropriate. 
some companies are being more aggressive than others in terms of reducing their footprint. But again, still early to say we need to see what happens in the future. One thing we know is that once you have an idea of, you know, the size of your space, you need to start thinking about the whole distribution. I have the feeling that we are not going to see a lot of bench desking anymore because that was the result of, you know, make the space more and more and more efficient. Uh, We might see some furniture that we used to use years before coming back. And I think that's a good thing. That's a good thing to have, you know, more air per person. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's quite solid actually to start with, okay, that's our plan in terms of remote work allowance and then starting to make assumptions on how much will people take up on that offer, maybe depending on their role as well. And then what kind of seeds do we need to build? So I think that's a really interesting model to have. But another really interesting data model that I'm very much invested in in investigation is How do you measure the success of the workplace model after you have built it out? It's a tough one, but I think that you will have two very important sources of data that you can use to make decisions. One is uh, the actual use of the space. And, you know, years before COVID, we had, you know, sensors coming in the work, into the workplace to understand occupancy and utilization and how people move around. And, you know, it actually helped to predict the use of different spaces. That is going to be one very important source of information for us to understand where people gather, you know, how people move around, where is not so much people walking by so it's more private, or, you know, what are the best hours to go to the cafeteria because there's less people there and all of that. So everything that has to do with occupation and people moving around the space, I think we are going to see a leap on that but it was already happening. Probably it's going to be a little different. Maybe the driver before was make the space even more efficient and, you know, reduce real estate. Maybe that's not going to be the driver. The driver is going to be more experienced. That's the other component. I think that in the era of apps, there has to be some sort of, you know, workplace virtual assistant or something that will help you and will, you know, start your experience even before you go there, or even if you are not there, right? And that's very interesting because it will help you navigate the space. It will help you find your team, you know, find the right space to use. I figure that the future is unassigned, so you won't have your own space. But, you know, having sort of teaming spaces or spaces for you to book for a certain period of time. If we are working on a project and the project, lasts, I don't know, a couple of months, maybe we are able to book a teaming space for us for that period of time and use that space and put all information in the walls and work as a team there and then release that space and give it back to others. That's not a new idea That's that was there before. But I think that technology is going to allow you to get like immediate feedback from people. We did a study perhaps a couple of years ago, and it was on a mixed-use center, not a workplace. But I found it super interesting that they started like following the experience of people and measuring the different interactions that people had, both with technology and personal interactions. And it was super interesting to realize that in that particular case, 
the ranking of experience when people interact with technology was much higher than when they interact with actual people, which is basically telling you in that kind of a space, perhaps you can have a complete like, you know, technology-based wayfinding signage, information, augmented reality, and, you know, to give people access to all they need on the palm of their hand with their mobile phone and not necessarily you need to have like people to interact or give directions. It is possible that something like that comes to the workplace. Absolutely. And the fact that you will be measuring it, like, I don't know, a rating system or something that is very simple for the user to just rank this experience in the cafeteria, it will give you a lot of information to make better decisions. And I think that both will give us a good measure of success. In one hand, that your space is being used in an efficient way that will help you to make you know, decisions in real time about, for example, how to reconfigure the office. If you go for a more sort of flexible approach and you will adapt and reconfigure your space depending on the use, there will be a moment where you'll be able to predict how to do that. Right, and predict that how some spaces are going to be used and prepare the office for that. And on the other hand, the measure of experience, I'm convinced that experience is going to be the new currency. A building that provides a better experience to people is going to be more valuable than a building that doesn't. Coming from your role, you do have exposure to different industries and how they see it. Do you see differences in that regard? Yes. Technology is always the one, like, you know, the, the technology industry, tech companies are typically the ones that are pushing the boundaries. I would say in LATAM at least, but I guess it translates well to some other parts of the world. The financial industry is coming right, right beside them in terms of innovation. And on the other, you know, side of the spectrum, probably government is one of the most difficult ones. And um, for a number of reasons, but typically a government office is a legacy place in a very old building, you know, and they always have this sort of hierarchical sort of way to make decisions. At the end of the day, people making decisions is not really worried about expenditure or, you know, or save more money because it's not their money. So it's sometimes, sometimes you find difficult to break the status quo on that type of clients. That said, some are doing it and some are going there and being more, you know, want to know more about what the private sector is doing. But all in all, you know, all the internal procedures and the decision making makes it difficult to make changes, right? So th those are probably the two sides of the spectrum. The two extremes. And it's actually very valid. We tend to forget, or I tend to forget that, of course, government has offices and stuff and probably loads of office space that you could look at and probably in really nice buildings as well. So yes. <laughs> I have two last questions for you. One is if you could magically solve any real estate problem for Latin America or the world, what would it be? Hybrid meanings. I think that's a very big challenge. And you mentioned this before. Now we are all equal. We are all virtual. You know, we are on the same, we're living in the same virtual world. Before that, most were physically present. 
when it comes the moment that you will have, you know, I don't know, half of the team in the room and the other half sitting in different parts of the city, that is going to be very challenging. I wonder how technology is going to help us to solve that. If we need to change the design, the shape, the furniture of the meeting rooms to make it more, I don't know, immersive in terms of, you know, in both virtual and physical. And that, that's, I think, one of the greatest challenges for, for the future. Yeah. And then my second question I like to ask, who else should I talk to on the podcast? And is there specific questions you would like to ask them? That's a very interesting question. I've been very curious about the flexibility in real estate. I think that one super interesting model is the one that Convene uses. It's a, a working company in the US, but actually their their sites are not similar to other co-working spaces. They are more on meetings and events and of course workspaces as well. And they came with this concept many years ago. So they were really thinking that the future of a distributed workforce will require people to have spaces to meet beyond the actual office. Right? So you live in certain part of the of the city, so you go to your hub office maybe once a week or once every couple of weeks. But apart from that, you will have a couple of meetings with your team or people that lives nearby and you need a place to do that. And I think that that's a very interesting concept. And that would be Ryan Simonetti, one of the founders, a person that, that I would definitely ask how that idea hit you. So many years ago when you know we were not even thinking about having the opportunity we have right now. Co-working is definitely on my list because I'm really curious because that's something that everyone's turning to right now because they got the experience part right in most cases already. And they have, in many cases, interesting, flexible leasing models. So I do want to tap into that. Now demand is a very strong force that is going to drive success for those type of spaces. There is a real demand, both from individuals, corporations, for more flexibility in the workplace. Thank you very much, Jose. It was a pleasure bringing some light onto what's going on in Costa Rica. And now I think it's quite early still in your day. I wish you a good day with loads of sunshine. Thank you, Sabine. Thank you so much. I've been honored to be invited to your podcast. I had a great time. Thank you so much. And you too have a great day and a great week. Thanks for listening. If you have enjoyed this episode of The Workplace Leader, there is more. Go visit our blog and have a look at some of the other topics we have covered. We have just released a study on corporate real estate in the US that you can download there. Or tune into our next episode of the workplace leader. <laughs>